You are are listening to Making Bank, where we uncover the mindset and success strategies of the top 1% so you can amplify your life and your business. Welcome to Making Bank. I am Josh Felber, where we uncover the success strategies and the secrets of the top 1% so you can amplify and transform your life and your business. So I'm excited today to welcome Dean Graciosi, Dave Asprey, Justin Brooke, Steve Sims, Tom Bilyeu, JP Sears, Randall Grizzle to Making Bank. So maybe what are like um, three closing tips that you could share that our audience could take and start utilizing? Sure. So the first tip that, that I would give is eliminate whatever it is that you're selling in your process as much as you can. Like that's the first step. Like don't don't overthink or overanalyze what you're doing because it's not a it's really not going to end up being about what you're doing. And I think that's the biggest misconception that most people have with sales is they're like, I need to get really good at selling when I think that I would like them to get really good at knowing who they are like personally so that they're able to relate with the other folks on a level where they're able to ask questions that other people wouldn't ask about themselves, about their personal life, about their real why. Like, let's not talk about how awesome our services are because it really doesn't, that's not why people are going to buy, but that's a misconception. Most people, they get, you know, this, they get on, they say, tell me what, what, what you can do to help me. Right. And, and most uh, maybe the average sales guy says, OK, these are the different plans that we can do, ma'am, which one looks good to you. Right. Like you have to always be and this is uh, you always have to be in possession of that possession arrow or uh, Orrin Clough in his book. He calls it. Yeah, you're always in control of the frame. Right. Yeah. So I think that's the that would be the, the one tip. The second tip would be. Um, would be whatever whatever product or service that you're selling, if you don't believe in it, like like what I was talking about, to the point where like sell something else. Like that's why these network and marketing things work so good. And they say <laughs> they're not, they're drinking the juice. <laughs> right. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> right. It's because it's undeniable when you got some good juice, right? Whatever that, that's making you feel good that when your family and your friends, and I'm not a network marketer, like that's not my space, but I'm just saying that that's where sales start because when your family and your friends come over and you got the juice, holy cow, you look good and you feel good and your mind's right. They're like, oh man, I want the juice. So so, so that would be the, the thing and to, to get people to where they want the juice, you, you have to believe in it first yourself. So that'd be the second thing. And I think the, the third thing was when you have that juice is having a clear, precise game plan from start to finish. Like, like we talked about, like, yeah, we, we play, we, yeah, I like to use football for talk. I like football. Right. But we, we understand that it's not about how many plays that we run. Like let's figure out one play. Like what's the play that we're really good at that everybody on the team can execute. Because I think a lot of times companies, are like focusing on the overall instead of like writing on a whiteboard. This is four or five steps that we're going to take. 
And then we're going to figure out how to have every guy execute along the way to make this one play work. What are your key points for high performance that have made you successful and then allow you to be efficient every day to be able to uh, have the energy and the stamina, you know, to go day yep. in and day out and really, you know, operate at those high levels that separate you from the rest? It's a great question. One is learn to say no. Everybody listening, you're an entrepreneur, you want more. We got here by saying yes to everything. But sure. we're gonna, you'll go to the next level by saying no. Dan Sullivan, strategic coach, yep. I've been going for years, he's got a great quote, is the, the strategy that got you out of Egypt is not the one that takes you to the promised land. And I always say is the yes got you out of Egypt, no takes you to the promised land. Sure. Look through your list today and decide what you can say no to. Because when you say yes to something, you're automatically saying no to something else. And say yes to those things that live with inside your unique ability that are going to take you the furthest. Secondly right. is I, I make a daily list. I, I write down what I, I mean. As we evolve, we get more efficient in our thinking, but it's still, there's nothing better for me, not, not video, not, not on my laptop, not on my iPhone. I physically write down what I want to accomplish that day and I cross them off as they're done at the end of the night and it gives you, it reminds you that you got a lot of stuff done. You, you know, and, and physically, like, you know, I, I don't know where you are physically, but the five o'clock this morning, I was running the yeah. mountain behind my house. I mean, I know that sounds crazy, but when I don't, I'm not as clear. There's not enough, much oxygen in my brain. I feel bad about myself. <laughs> I eat clean. When I eat clean and work out, it gives me cl a clarity and vision to start the day. Sure. And, and last, and I'll repeat what I said. It, it, one of the things that's taken me to a whole nother level in the last five years is being the observer of my thoughts and uh, throwing away the ones that don't serve me. And lastly is be careful who you surround yourself with. These are all things that you already know. I'm reminding you, but you know, the people you surround yourself with can dictate your future. So just, just be careful. What was the best advice that you've ever received? Best advice I ever received. Um, my buddy, Tony Robbins, I, I, he's, he became one of my best friends. I love the guy. Um, this sounds really simple, but it, <laughs> I was trying to decide between two schools for my kids. Sure. I have a six and an eight year old. One is the most expensive school in the area, almost impossible to get in. And I got them both accepted, you know, $35,000 a year for kindergarten kind of stuff, right? <laughs> and then this small little Christian school, but it had this warm feeling to it, but it didn't look like UCLA, like this school looked. Right. And I was going, I know it sounds crazy and I feel blessed to have those options. Maybe it sounds like rich people problems, right? But I was going back and forth. I, want, I, I worked my ass off. I went to the, you know, I, I struggled. I barely got out of school, lived in poverty. I want to give them the best education, sure. right? And, but this other school and I called Tony really quick and he just got on the phone. He said, brother, all I know is when I go with my heart, I'm always right. What's your heart say? I said, the small school. He goes, oh, you're done. That was the conversation. I went with the other school seconds. and I realized my, my head was the one getting in the way. Sure. So the best advice I can give you is your heart's usually right. Um, stop letting your head doubt you and create self-doubt and create that inner resistance. That's always your thoughts. What are some, maybe some ninja tactics we can utilize it, you know, we're going out, we're trying to buy our own media. We got a small or mid-size, you know, e-commerce business. We're trying to scale up, you know, six, seven figures. You know, w what would you say, hey, here's the first place you need to start. And then here's the best way to do X, Y, and Z. All right. So two things that I want to talk about, make sure I remember these two. One is what I call the traffic crisis. And then the other one I call the traffic Hail Mary. These are my own silly little names. Uh, so the traffic Hail Mary is the way most people are buying traffic. They have maybe $500 in their pocket or a hundred or a thousand, whatever their level of you know finances are, but they have a certain amount of money. They got a bankroll and they're like, oh, I heard Facebook ads is good. 
let me throw my 500 bucks in there. I'll create a couple of ads and I've got a sales page and I'll throw 500 bucks in there and see how it works. That's the traffic Hail Mary. You're launching the ball and you're hoping that somebody catches it on the other side and catching it on the other side for them is, am I going to get ROI? But that's not how a pro media buyer buys traffic. That's basically the lottery. I mean, what I just described, go to the store, buy a lottery ticket. There's actually better odds uh, on that. So what the, the way that they should do it, let's say you have 500, 500 bucks, just an easy number. Everybody can scale this to their own budget. If you've got 500 bucks, you should set up your ads, set up a couple of landing pages, not just one page. If I see somebody driving paid traffic to their homepage one more time, I'm going to flip a table. So you got to have like a real actual landing page that you've made for this ad campaign. So what you're going to do is you're going to have a couple of different things to test. You're not just going to throw some money in there and roll the dice. You got a couple of different ads. You got a couple of different landing pages, and then you're going to spend 20% of your budget first. So if you have 500 bucks, you're going to spend a hundred bucks you're going to see which of those ads worked, which of those landing pages worked. You're going to kill the losers, and then you're going to spend another 100 bucks on the winners to verify that it wasn't a fluke. And if it worked, then you're going to spend, then you're going to start putting the other money in there. And you create a scientific process. So many times I've been able to come into a client's account and beat the last guy who was trying to run ads for them just because I have a better structure to my accounts and the way that I put my ads and keywords and landing pages together. That's the number one tip that will save everybody. I look at it like horse betting at first, you're going to bet on all the horses and then you're going to look and see which horses brought back your money. In this case, the horses is ads, you know, the horses is your landing pages, which ones actually won you money. Stop betting on the losers. Obviously, now take your whole bankroll and put it on the winners. Now you're making money. That's what, see, so many people come so close. They put their 500 bucks in and they're like, oh, I only got two sales. I'm like, that means it worked. You know, like you made yeah, some sales. Right. What, what, <laughs> what part of it made you two sales and go dump your whole bankroll on that part? You know, and that's, that's how you actually do it. And so, um, I guess, you know, how long do you, you know, kill or keep, you know, do you decide to actually kill the ad or keep it? You know, it's running, it's running, it's running three, five days a week. You know, what do you usually look at for your, yeah, that's a great question that we get a lot of times. You know, I like to try and go, you know, the longer you can go, the better the data is going to be, you know, that's really what you're doing is you're buying data. You're not obviously ROI is the goal and sales is the goal. Like I love money too, but when you're spending your first money, the number one priority is getting good data that you can then use that data to make money from. So, you know, I like the a minimum 200 clicks or 30 conversions, you know, so 30 conversions, you know, might be 30 leads. Obviously, if you're selling a $500 product, maybe you probably need to be putting $100, more than $100 in, you know. Um, so, yeah, you know, about 200 clicks. And like I said, the more you can go, you know, like if you if you're gonna put in 500 clicks, if you put in 500 clicks and you don't get a single sale, it's definitely dead. I'll tell you that right now, it ain't gonna make a comeback. But if you put in 200 clicks and you get one sale on the 199th click, 
man, that almost kind of worked, you know? So it's about having the right level of data, you know? No, and that's, uh, and I think that's good is a lot of people don't actually look at the data, the data or the data, you know, they're putting the money in, they're kind of like, okay, cool. Is it, am I getting a sale or not? And you know, after three or four or five days a week, it's like, man, nothing's happening here. And you know, they're just, and they think, oh, it might've been a bad ad, but even though if a few more days and a few more clicks that might've come through would have created yeah. a significant difference. Oh, another big rule. Don't look at your ad campaigns for 72 hours after you press publish. So many people, I, I get, I get it all day, man. You know, they'll be like, Justin, I didn't get any conversions. I'm like, how long was it? It's like three hours. We got three <laughs> clicks. I'm like, dude, come on. Like, but you know, we laugh right now, but I yeah. hear it every day, all day. And from people who've laughed about it. So you've got to wait. I, my rule, my hard rule, 72 hours. I wait 72 hours let the machine collect the data. Then I go in and I look at it and I try to see what story is this data data trying to tell me, kill the losers, put my money back on the winners. That's the way you make money. That's the traffic Hail Mary. That's the cure for the traffic Hail Mary. The other thing is the traffic crisis. I've been telling people about this for years. It's happened everywhere. It's never going to stop happening. It's not me making up something. It's very real. And what it is, is it's a, it's, a, it's a supply and demand thing. And so if you look at the beginning of Google, Google AdWords, people were able to buy clicks all day long for five cents. Now, in some markets, you're lucky if you get clicks for five bucks. You know, And, and so every ad network has this problem. It starts out with a really high supply of clicks and not a lot of demand. So the clicks are very cheap. And then after everybody starts coming onto the network, the clicks start climbing up. What do you think is happening to Facebook right now? Everybody's on Facebook. Click prices are rising. We used to talk about penny clicks and 10 cent clicks and 20 cent clicks. Now we're like, man, can I still get my clicks under a dollar in Facebook? You know, and we're starting to see there's something coming up called max ad load with Facebook. It's going to hit uh, there. It's rumored to hit about Q1 of 2017. You can go listen to the earnings calls, the investor calls uh, for Facebook, specifically Google the Q2 earnings call for Facebook. And you'll hear the investors talking about max ad load over and over again. What are you going to do about max ad load? So what it is. Facebook can only show so many ads in their news feeds before it becomes all ads, right? So for a long time, the way they've been showing investors increased profits is they're just jacking up how many ads are being shown. Simple. But max ad load is coming, and that is basically we can't turn that up anymore. You know, If you look at your feed now, there's almost an ad every two posts. You see a lot more ads in your feeds nowadays and they're on the right hand sidebar and they're now in Facebook groups and now they're in your mobile. And, you know, so th that's coming. And when fa when max ad load hits, you know, the cost per click is going to skyrocket, especially for that U.S. mails 25 to 45 on desktop in the news feed like that, that money target that everybody's using and everybody's putting their ads. Guess what? That's going up. Uh, so you need to figure out what to do next. My prediction is Google Display. It's very similar to Google to Facebook ads. Um, there's a lot of the same targeting. They still have custom audiences. They still have lookalike audiences. 
So that's that's where I'm pushing my money and my subscribers. So um, what what do you think kind of like maybe you know, I guess your three kind of strategies or success points that have worked really well for you? I mean, obviously you connect with a lot of people. Uh, you're putting people, whether it's playing with their favorite soccer star to this whole James Bond to diving at the Titanic. Uh, I guess, how, like, how does how do you, I guess, go about making those connections and making those kind of things happen? Because most people are just like, I mean, how does that even work? Yeah, you see, my greatest talent is I'm, I'm far more stupid than anyone else here. The intelligent response should be yours. You know, oh my God, how do you even start? I'm so stupid. I go, well, I want to go and do this. And then I say, well, let me start. So you start somewhere. You start by making phone calls. I avoid emails like the plague. Okay. Um, I make phone calls. I send letters. I send gifts. Silly little gifts. Um, Just anything. An iPhone case or um, a magazine subscription to whatever they like. I do something to try and connect with the person. So I don't foresee how this can go wrong. Uh, I am that, that, that British bulldog that just keeps banging his head on the door until the door opens. Right. Um, and then I start, and I'll often fail. You know, I'll phone someone up, sorry, we don't take calls. All right, start sending gifts. Start loitering outside the door, finding out where they go. You know, I will, I will just try all these different things until I get what I want. Then I'm incredibly transparent. I always ask a question that you can't answer no to. So if I walked up to the academia, that museum in Florence, and I went, hey, how much does it cost for this? I want to do this party next Friday. Can I do it? There's far too many questions in that question, and it ends with one that's very easy to go no. Okay. When you want something from someone, you've got to position it. So, hey, I have this amazing dream to have a restaurant in the most amazing place in Florence. And I can't think of anywhere more amazing than here. What do we need to do to make that happen? And position it, get them on board with the passion and ask the question that they can't respond with no. And if they come back and they say, well, we've never done it before. Great. So we're making history. This is the first. Can right. you imagine how unique this was? And just basically get them involved. Get them to drink the Kool-Aid. And then they're like, oh. I remember when I contacted the Vatican. Um, now, the Vatican's don't have emails. They actually have faxes. <laughs> True, they have faxes. And so I thought myself, I'll phone them up, okay? So I phoned them up. And the person on the other end of the phone said to me in very good English, they said, um, we've never had this request before. And I said, great. This is the first, you know, and but they had never had anyone phone up. But when I when I go and do my speeches and I speak to people about the Vatican, they come back with the same response that you give. They go, oh, I, I, I wouldn't know where to start. Oh, my God, this couldn't be done. They they place these hurdles in front of themselves that distance themselves not only from the goal, but then add a couple of miles to it. All you got to do is reach into your right pocket, pull out your phone, Google the Vatican and push dial and go, hey, you know, they may get a no, but you're far more steps ahead than the person that sits there developing all these obstacles. And uh, yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, from what... What I can think that what you're saying is you don't see the no's, you don't see those hurdles. And I guess for me, I know when I was, ever since I was a kid and I started my first business at 14, I never could see, oh, hey, is this not going to work? I don't see, I never figured out, oh. That's the stupidity gene. And, and I think a lot of entrepreneurs have it. And I think it's, I, I, I think people, 
the, the ignorance, the ignorance to failure and the, the little kids that just sit there and they say, I'm going to jump over that. And the parents stand there and go, no, you can't do that. You're going to scratch yourself. You're going to do this. So from an early age, we're taught that maybe we can't. Now, of course, there's a lot of smart lessons in that as parents. I'm not suggesting all parents push the kids off the roof and, you know, there you go, you can fly. But we're taught from a very young age to reconsider, rethink what it is you wanted to do. And Greg Reed uh, did a speech once and uh, he said, it's the size of your butt that gets you, you know, that gets in your way. But I can't do this. But this yeah, has happened. But, right. And all that shit. Whereas if you're ignorant to the fact of the failure, you just go, I want to do that. Right, here I go. Sure. And you just do it. So one of the things you mentioned um, was, you know, that, transformation from that fixed mindset that, to that growth mindset and really starting to learn. And I think that's key as entrepreneurs are just any best trying to move further ahead in life. Um, I know I've been uh, read through like Carol DeWick's book and I'm trying to work to teach my kids and, you know, and I've always tried to um, uh, encourage them to ask questions, to, you know, try to figure out solutions and, you know, and everything. And so I think that's key to uh, a big part of success for sure. No question. And for me, that really is like the most important thing anybody can do is understand the truth of the nature of a growth mindset. Mm, right. And I love the Charles Darwin quote. So everybody misquotes Darwin and, and they attribute the notion of the survival of the fittest to him, but he actually didn't say that. That was something that was said long after he died. What he said was, it's not the strongest of the species that survive, nor the most intelligent, but rather the most adaptive to change. Mm, and so it's yeah. like, okay, wait a second. If that's true, and we become the apex predator in a game where adaptation is what allows you to progress, then we must be the greatest species at adaptation ever. Sure. Which I think is absolutely true. And yeah. so then I began to research, okay, what does that process look like from a neurological standpoint? Like, how are we actually adapting? And then you get into myelination, you get into notions of is, is talent a myth? Like, are you born with it? Do you create it? And looking at the way the brain myelinates, looking at the way that you're literally building connections by wrapping fatty tissue around it between two neurons right. that allows the electrical impulse to travel faster, but you do it through repetition, right? So you decide you're gonna get good at something, you practice it in a disciplined fashion, you're doing those things together, your brain is myelinating, you're wiring for it, you're getting better through that, and that's literally how you're adapting. It's like, okay, well, if the brain does that, it doesn't necessarily matter where I started, only matters where I want to go and the price I'm willing to pay to get there. Sure. Because right? that the process is <clears throat> A, it takes time, and B, it takes a lot of effort. Like you have to put massive stressors on any organism, certainly the human animal is right. this is true. You have to put a massive stressor on it to get it to adapt, right? And as somebody that has a background in CrossFit, like you get that. Right. You don't show up at the gym and sort of like <laughs> waffle about, like you have to go in and try to, to kill it. Right. And in that, you force your body to adapt. And so I had the same notion that you'll hear people in bodybuilding talk about, you know, adapt or die, right? Like sure. going to the gym, telling themselves, like, you're going to fucking do this weight. Yep. You're going to kill it. You're going to crush it. You're going to go after it. And like they have to do that and they put all this intensity and adapt or die, like adapt or die. And you give your body that impulse. The same is true of the brain. And so I began giving myself like just saying that all, all the time, all the time, like adapt or die, adapt or die, like learn this, like the stakes are high to learn this technique to get really good. At, sure. Even if it was marketing, right? right. It was like, I'm going to learn this and I'm going to push myself and put a stressor and make demands, hold myself accountable to results, all that. And in doing that, you really begin to adapt. And so that was when it's like, okay. 
I wasn't the most naturally gifted. I have no natural inclinations towards entrepreneurship, right. but all of this can be learned. And so along your journey, what were maybe three of your most transformational parts of your life that really, whether it was relationships, whether it was business, that uh, helped you move to the next level? Well, my wife changed everything for me. Okay. There's no question about that. My wife has made me a better version of myself than I would be without her. And we have a, a shared agreement that, that has been utterly transformational in my life. And it goes like this. Um, when life rocks me, knocks me to my knees, makes me feel badly about myself, makes me question who I am, don't, don't get on your knees with me, put an arm around me and tell me everything is going to be fine. Mm. Don't have sympathy for me. Sure. What I want is empathy. Stay standing, extend a hand, pick me back up, brush me off, and remind me of who I'm trying to become. That's what I'm looking for. And so there have been times in my life where I've felt weak. And I'm like, God, am I really going to be able to pull right. this off? And she's been there to remind me of who I'm trying to become, to remind me of my identity, right? And identity is a very fluid thing. It's a tenuous thing that has to be reinforced all the time, all the time, all the time. And so to have a partner, a true partner in my life that constantly reinforces that is huge. Um, the other one is realizing that I could build my self-esteem around something that was anti-fragile. Okay. If you, so I didn't have the words at the time, but um, Nassim Taleb wrote a book called Anti-Fragile. And he talks about how something that's resilient, something that's tough, strong, they're still defined by their breaking point. It's just that their uh, breaking point right. is very far away. Something that's anti-fragile actually gets stronger the more you attack it. Sure. So being a learner is anti-fragile. Because if you tell me that I'm stupid, I'm going to actually listen. God, maybe they're right. Maybe I don't know something about that. Right. Once I realize I don't know, once I realize I have a blind spot, now I can address it because I'm the learner. Sure. I can go and learn about something. Now, because I didn't have ego around the fact that I didn't know it, I didn't try to push you away. Right. I didn't try to shut you down or ignore what you were saying. I really like stop nakedly, no defenses, and go, where's the truth in that statement. Mm, yeah. And then it's like, wow, now I'm not blind to this anymore. I'm very grateful for that. And, I, and I'll dive in. So that has been incredible. Um, and then just, you know, really realizing that humans are adaptation machines and that just because I'm not good at something today doesn't mean I can't become good at it tomorrow. And once you look at, you know, you're talking about Tony Robbins earlier, once you look at yourself on a long enough timeline, it really sure. gets interesting. And Tony said very famously, People overestimate what they can do in a year, but they underestimate <laughs> what they can do in 10. Right. And so I just started thinking about the 10. Like, what can I do in 10 years? Like, how much can I transform myself in 10 years? So not letting people like externally mess with my identity or my self-esteem, being anti-fragile, learning, 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 always being willing to lower my defenses. And, you know, one of the, the things that I remember like really sort of conceptual, I, I have to conceptualize things. I have to codify sure. them in my mind. And I remember thinking when people insult you, when they say something mean, especially when it's true, it's like they threw a rock at you and they hit you and it sucks. Right. So your natural inclination is to build defenses, right? To not be open to that criticism. And then I realized, well, what if I imagine them instead of being a rock, it's a nugget of gold. It still hurts. Like when sure. somebody throws yeah. a nugget of gold at you and it hits you in the head and it cut you and they bleed, you may need stitches. But when you bend down and pick it up, if you're willing to be defenseless, a nugget of gold is sitting at you. Right. And you start accumulating those nuggets of gold and now you've really got wisdom. You've got real wealth. And so I just decided, yeah, I'm not going to be defensive anymore. I'm, I'm going to lower all that. I'm going to be vulnerable. I'm going to, um, you know, let people throw that stuff at me. I'm just not going to let it damage sure. who I am. Right. And so I'm going to take pride in being defenseless. Like right. That will be the thing that I build my self-esteem around is being willing to stare nakedly at my inadequacies.
what were maybe those steps or that process that went through your mind to actually get you to where you are? Yeah, uh, my one word summary would be action. Uh, I think a mistake I was making in my late teens and early 20s is trying to find my purpose and then take action. And I I think that if I I kept myself there, I'd still be waiting uh, to take action because I, I, at least in my journey, and I think a lot of people's journeys that I've had association with, we tend to find our purpose, our passion, once we start taking action. But the, I think the, the, the sense of control we're after is like, no, we, I want to find my purpose so I can be guaranteed that my actions are going to be fruitful to my purpose. It's like, well, you can do that, but just have a comfortable chair because you're going to be waiting to take action for a lot of decades. So I started taking action when I was 20, late teens, actually. I became a personal trainer and got passionate about exercise. And that was like a gluten-free breadcrumb trail that then got me interested in nutrition. I was like, wow, if exercise is a powerful way to help people's health, nutrition is like five times more powerful. So I got passionate about nutrition, but it wasn't like the end game of my passion. Then nutrition was part of the gluten-free breadcrumb trail that got me interested in stress reduction. It's like, wow, I thought nutrition could make a powerful impact on people's health uh, and my health. But wow, reducing stress, it's like intangible, but so impactful. And then stress reduction then led me into like genuine emotional healing with people looking directly into, you know, not just the superficial stresses, but the really the matters of the heart. So me taking action on things that were like they were exciting to me, but they weren't deeply, deeply purposeful to me, that action is what led me into my purpose. And I needed that breadcrumb trail or else like, you know, when I was 19, if you said, JP, how would you like to do emotional healing work and uh, teach people personal empowerment? I'd say, get out of here. That stuff is useless. That's, that's, that's for weak women and monks. Um, so I, I needed the action of doing what I wasn't deeply purposeful uh, about, deeply passionate about, to find that which really spoke to my heart. I, I mean, I, dude, I think that's like I've asked a variety of people, and I think that's the best thing that I've. I mean, it's easy to understand, and you're not finding your purpose is not that next thing. It may be the 10 things down your path. And each thing, it sounds like, led for you, led you to the next, to the next, to the next, and brought you on that journey to where you are today. And I think everybody seems to be searching for that one, like you said, one big purpose. That, boom, okay, purpose, got it. Now let's take action. (laughs) (laughs) Man. Yeah, I don't think the purpose of our life is to sit around and think about what our purpose is. I think there's a reason why we're like in this, like three, we have this three-dimensional ability. Like, yes, we can think and that's awesome. Uh, yes, we can talk and that's awesome. But like there's this more impactful thing called action. It's very three-dimensional. And I think, you know, our, our purpose is always action oriented. And I think part of the purpose of action is to eventually lead us to 
uh, our real purpose. It's like searching for a buried treasure without moving our feet. It's like, well, it's like you've got like a, a you know a six foot radius that you potentially can scour without moving your feet, but that leaves the rest of the earth completely unsearched. Three things that you would say, hey guys, today go out and take these three action steps to yeah. get more mindfulness lists or for more, you know, better um, uh, just overall spirit spirituality or, you know, better enlightenment in your life. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The three things that come to my mind, uh, number one is reiterating, do something to make yourself uncomfortable. Uh, number two is feel your feelings, like find a body sensation. I'm not even saying emotions, like let's get more primal than that. Find a body sensation. Is it tingling in your chest? Is it tightness? Is it something in your stomach? Is it uh, a throbbing in your leg? Is it a light, expansive feeling? But find a body sensation and breathe with it and feel it for at least a minute. Like we, we get so in our heads and out of touch with this miraculous instrument that we're blessed with that works for us. It's always telling us uh, what the right direction is for us if we're in tune with it. And it's a, a very wise instrument that speaks in the language of feelings. It doesn't speak English. It speaks in the language of feeling. And a lot of us don't understand. We're not even listening in the language that this vessel of wisdom speaks to us. And so Feel a body sensation for a minute. Exercise your ability to understand the feeling language of your being. And then the third thing I'd invite people to do is look someone in the eyes today and let them know why you are grateful for them. Yeah, that's awesome. I guess we'll leave maybe our audience with something really awesome they can take away from what you're doing to help move their business forward in their life. Let's talk, did we talk about the box breath last time? No, so not. One of the things that happens as entrepreneurs, like this, this, I don't think we talked about this other stuff either. When you're an entrepreneur, it's like having a baby, kind of, right? Sure. You know, we both have young kids about the same age. Uh, I tried to step on your kids' feet earlier at the conference. It was fun. <laughs> so, uh, when you're when you're having a child, it's like they're a part of you, right? Right. And then or as as they grow up to be a teenager, and all, like they, they they separate, and like you energetically separate. But when when you're when they're very young, they're a little bit like a part of your life, right? right? And 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 the separation slowly builds. When you're starting a company, it's actually your energy in the company, yeah. and it, it's like it's like there's this energy bubble and it gets bigger and bigger. And in order to allow your company to succeed, you actually have to allow it to like step out of the nest. Like when your kids go off to college or something. Sure. My kids are nowhere near going off to college. <laughs> but they're already like they're getting to be independent, right? There's a thing that happens with entrepreneurs where same thing happens with parents. If, if there's a threat to your children, it's a threat to you. Right. It's a visceral threat. Sure. Right? Well, it turns out the threats to your company are not visceral threats at all. They just feel that way. Right. So if you believe and you react to a threat to your company as if it's a visceral threat, you will experience the symptoms of an animal dying. Huge amounts of sympathetic activation, fight or flight activation, your sleep will be crappy, your relationships will be crappy, your health parameters will be crappy, and your life will be crappy. Right. So your job is to consciously tell yourself every night, I am not my company. Right? Uh, yeah. If you use that sure. mantra to yourself, right? Yep. Like, I am separate from my company. 
I exist and I am happy and fulfilled irrespective of my company. Of course you're going to be more happy when your company kicks ass. It feels <laughs> good, all right? Like, yeah. like, we're not but, disputing that right now. Yeah. Just the simple fact that if your company were to blow up tomorrow, you can either be happy or sad or dead. Right? But it has nothing to do with whether your company blows up tomorrow or whether it blows up in a good way or blows up in a bad way. Right. Right? That Any of that sense. can happen. Just recognize that one fact, taking a deep breath yeah. and, and meditating on that and visualizing and viscerally feeling the fact that actually a threat to the company is not a threat to me. Right? Yeah. That's, That's awesome. a huge change. I am Josh Felber. You're watching Making Bank, where we uncover the success strategies and the secrets of the top 1%. Get out and be extraordinary. Thank you for listening to Making Bank. If you have enjoyed this episode, please leave a review. And sharing is caring. Follow Josh Felber on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram for more. You can also listen to Making Bank on Amazon Alexa, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and watch on Apple TV, Success Thinkers Network, Amazon Fire, and YouTube. 